You're listening to Security Squad, blogging security and Patch Tuesday for May 18th, 2007. I don't know. Are there going to be that many companies who are interested in a patch that may not be ready for prime time? Well, what, I, I, what about the third-party patches? Yeah, that I think um, EI and others. Well, they get a lot of publicity, exactly. but I think it remains to be seen exactly how many companies are implementing these third-party patches. You know, let's not get in a position of feeling sorry for Microsoft here. They have all the resources in the world, and if they decide, okay, we want to push out an emergency patch, they have plenty of people they can bring in and get that done get things together and release a patch ASAP before the next schedule how, patch. How Tuesday. long is that happening? In terms of how long does how it take? Times, how many times is that happening? Uh, I don't know how many times it's happened off the top of my head, but... I think it's three. I mean... Maybe four. As more and more employees are mobile, they have their laptops and their PDAs, and you don't just have people sitting in the office Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 anymore. People are mixing business and personal pursuits on their work devices. Welcome to Security Squad. I'm Rob Westerveld, and with me is Executive Editor Dennis Fisher, Senior News Writer Bill Brenner, and Site Editor Eric Parizzo. In this edition, we'll talk about some of the latest issues being discussed in the newsroom. First, we'll talk about blogging security. Is blogging on corporate laptops introducing a security risk? Is it a legitimate threat? Next, the issue of Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. Should it be scrapped, or is it helpful? Dennis Fisher will have something to say about that. Then back to the TJX data security breach. A Wall Street Journal report ties the breach to Wi-Fi exploits. That begs the question, why are companies lagging behind on Wi-Fi security? And finally, a brief discussion on industry consolidation. Verizon follows British Telecom with its own security acquisition. Verizon intends to buy Cybertrust. Is consolidation good for the market, or will customers pay the price? All right, first up is blogging security. A risk management specialist at a Boston-area presentation recently sounded alarm. Uh, He spoke about the security risks introduced when bloggers use corporate laptops, but some are calling the threat overhyped. Bill, that was your story? Uh, Yes, this was from a... uh lunch seminar I attended last week in Newton, Mass., and uh, Don Ulsh from Jefferson Wells, um, a large consulting firm, gave an overview on emerging threats and spent a lot of time talking about the dangers companies face if they don't watch what their employees are doing. And one example that he gave was uh, people who blog using mobile company devices and his, his argument was that doing so is dangerous because blogs can be a tool used by the bad guys, um, that there are ways, all kinds of ways that they can scan for data that these blogs collect during the process. Eric, what do you have to say about that? From my perspective, I think regardless of how you um, blog, I think from a corporate perspective, um, you just got to be smart about it. I think you either have to take one of two perspectives. You either have to have a policy and actually articulate it to your employees, or you just have to not allow it at all. Because I feel like the approach of, from a corporate perspective, just burying your head in the sand, ignoring blogging, and then down the road when someone has a blog and there's something one of your employees has written about the company that you don't like, then suddenly having to react to that, um, it puts the company in a bad position for a number of reasons. And that's exactly the point that Ulsh was making. 
He Not everybody agrees with him, though. Alan Schimmel from uh, Still Secure went on his blog last week and, and really went on a tirade against Ulsh, just talking about how this was FUD, you know, the FUD word again, and how Ulsh should keep the FUD to himself. and, and uh, FUD in what way? FUD in that he is making the threat that blogging poses to be a, a much bigger deal than it really is, and that he... He doesn't think the likelihood of it being used by the bad guys is as grave as what Alsh suggests. Dennis, what's your view? I'd have to say, I, I think the real risk in corp, corporate blogging is the kind of information that employees can post on those blogs uh, without any oversight by the by the company itself. I mean, there's there's all kinds of problems with, or potential problems with intellectual property leakage, um, just you know, details about the company's uh, daily activities that you don't necessarily want out in public but, but seem trivial to whoever's blogging. I think, uh, you know, the, whether it's on a mobile device or, you know, your own laptop or desktop at home is, isn't really the real problem. It's definitely uh, what, you're, what the employee may or may not be putting on the blog that's the problem. Do we think, though, that, I mean, blogging is nothing new. Are we at the point now where blogging is so commonplace and people understand the implications of having uh, a business or company-related blog. I mean, is is it really that big of a deal? Do people not understand that there are obvious danger points to, to be aware of? Yeah, you know, to me, this issue goes even beyond blogging itself, which was one of several examples he gave. To me, the the big issue is that as more and more employees are mobile, they have their laptops and their PDAs, and you don't just have people sitting in the office Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 anymore. People are mixing business and personal pursuits on their work devices and doing a lot of things in their own personal pursuits that are very bad for company security. That's a real problem for IT security administrators because how do you... What are you going to do, put a camera in everybody's home and see what oh, they do? Oh, that's doing? absolutely true. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, you hear all the time about people who bring their laptops home and then their kids jump on the Internet with them and then, yeah. you know, all heck breaks loose as a result. So it's definitely an issue. But if that's the case and, and companies don't want employees doing those kinds of things, then as you said, Eric, you need to set up a policy and you need to enforce that policy. There's plenty, I mean, there's absolutely plenty of products out there that you can use to block access to sites like Blogger or any, you know, other sites like that, you can set up enforceable policies that prevent you from accessing, you know, non-work-related websites, you know, you can block the the USB ports, any of that kind of stuff you want to do. Um, I think it's still up to the IT folks to enforce those policies. They can't expect that the employees are going to police themselves, because as we know, they're not going to. One question I have is the issue more of creating the policy, coming, you know, spending the time to actually development develop it, or is it more about enforcement? What do you think of that, Bill? I think it's a little of both in that it's enforcing and cracking down is very doable. It's just that it's not something that's on the radar screen of a lot of IT shops now. And like many other threats, it's going to take somebody getting spanked in an attack through something like this before, you know, before we really start writing the stories about what people are starting to do to crack down. Mm, that's you know. true. I wonder if it's something that falls through the cracks as well. I mean, you know, on, on, in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not at the top of the list in terms of IT security threats either. Right. 
Yeah, I think part of the problem is people don't, within a certain company, don't understand whose responsibility is. Should it be IT's responsibility to build this policy or should it be HR? Who's going to enforce it? I mean, that's there's sort of a gray area there. Yeah. Should Microsoft abandon Patch Tuesday? Microsoft should use its resources to produce high-quality patches shortly after vulnerabilities are discovered, rather than waiting for Patch Tuesday. Dennis, those are your words from a recent column you wrote on the issue. What do you have to say about it? To me, uh, when I wrote the column, I didn't really expect it to be all that uh, controversial. My, my feeling was that this is kind of a logical way to approach the problem. It's the way that most software companies approach it. It's the way that Microsoft approached it up until about 2003. You know, I understand there were a couple of points in the column that, that some people took issue with. One was the problem of timing, whether IT shops would rather have one patch, you know, patches come out piece by piece, one at a time, you know, one here, one there, or rather have them all scheduled on one day of the month as they are now. And that, I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree on that. I mean, it, it, it all depends on how you schedule your downtime, how you schedule your staff and your resources, whether you'd rather do that all at once or uh, what your preference is. But to me, the thing that there's no question on is if there's a known vulnerability out there, regardless of whether there's exploit code, there's active attacks, if there's a known vulnerability that you have details on, you have the resources to build the patch, why wait a week, two weeks, three weeks to build that patch? Get it built, tested, and deployed to your customers. Then it's up to them to deploy it as they see fit. I mean, we all know that, that organizations aren't necessarily deploying these patches the day that they come out. But I think it's Microsoft's responsibility and the responsibility of any other software company to get those patches built, tested, and, and out to customers as quickly as they can and then leave it up to the customer's discretion as to when they actually deploy them. Am I wrong in saying that the response to your column was overwhelmingly against you? No, I think that's probably right. I, I think uh, it, from the folks I've talked to, um, I'm definitely in the minority on that. And I think a lot of it has to do with that timing issue I talked about. A lot of people these days are very used to the Patch Tuesday concept and knowing that the week before Patch Tuesday, I'm going to find out that, okay, there are 10 or 12 or 19 or whatever it is, patches coming on Tuesday, they're for these products. We can schedule our resources. We'll know, you know when to take the servers down. We'll know when to patch them, all of that kind of thing. That's fine. I understand that. But to me, it's the crux of the issue is still the, the problem of that window of vulnerability between the time that the vulnerability itself is disclosed and the time that the patch is available. Eric? Yeah, Dennis took... Uh so much abuse from that column. He's actually sitting on an inflatable donut right now. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, to argue the other side of the coin, and again, this, is, this isn't something that uh, the folks listening to this don't know, but, but I think there are three key points to keep in mind here. First of all, Patch Tuesday has um, raised the awareness and importance of implementing patches in the enterprise. I mean, before um, 2003, when Dennis noted that uh, Microsoft um, kind of began having uh, scheduled patch releases, um, patches were released kind of haphazardly and, and companies never knew when to expect them. And, you know, perhaps the urgency wasn't um, what, it, what it might be today for a critical patch. So I think that's helped enterprises to understand the importance of implementing patches. I think a second point is um, it's improved Microsoft's processes as well. Having a schedule that it can plan on has increased its efficiency and helped it to 
um, learn how to better deploy patches and, and increase its, uh, you know, make its processes better as well. And finally, the third point is, I think it's helped build overall security awareness, um, you know, just throughout the industry. Yeah, I'm going to take the middle view on this. Um, I think I think Dennis is right in that it's it just doesn't make sense if you have zero day flaws to leave them unpatched for weeks on end because you're trying to squeeze everything into a monthly update. On the other hand, I think that the benefits of having a once a month patch rollout that IT shops can plan around has been um, pretty significant. And I. I've, over the years, talked to a lot of IT professionals that would talk about the scrambles that they would go into back in the days when Microsoft would just toss a patch out of nowhere and that, uh, you know, they like having something that they can plan around has been good for their security in the long run because it helps them be more organized. On the other hand, um, if you have a zero-day flaw and you have systems out there that are getting hammered. That's where getting something out fast has to trump the convenience of being able to plan. On the other side of the coin, though, Bill, let's remember that the vast majority of flaws are not being actively exploited in the wild. So in those cases, it doesn't make sense to, to rush out a patch for most of those. You know, it, the important thing to remember is that Microsoft can have its cake and eat it, too. I think the best case scenario, which Microsoft has kind of gotten into you know, in recent months is that most of the time, most of the patches are going to be released on that Patch Tuesday schedule. When there is a critical flaw, there are exploits in the wild, it advances its processes, it it has the bandwidth internally to get things together and release a patch ASAP before the next scheduled patch Tuesday. How long does that happen, though? In terms of how long does it take? How many times has that happened? Uh, I don't know how many times it's happened off the top of my head, but... I think it's three. I mean, maybe four. Still, it, it's important that Microsoft is is able to do that. I mean, I don't think Microsoft was in a position to do that a couple of years ago. No, that's true. But you know, let's not get in a position of feeling sorry for Microsoft here. They have all the resources in the world, and if they decide, okay, we want to push out an, an emergency patch, they have plenty of people they can bring in and get that done. They've proven they can do it. There's no question about that. They can turn out a high quality tested patch that they can get in the hands of customers very quickly. And I think the the other thing that's important to remember here is that, as Bill said, there's there's maybe a middle ground here that Microsoft uh, should, should take a look at. And I'm not going to take credit for this idea. It's not mine. But perhaps there's another way to do this in terms of you have the monthly schedule, but you also have the idea of getting out patches as soon as they're built to customers if they want them. You can have an alternate data stream that sends out these these patches to customers. Maybe they're not 100% tested. On so kind of like access to um, like a beta patch feed or something. Something along those lines, yeah. And you can deploy those if you want in the interim before Patch Tuesday. If you don't, you wait. That's fine. I don't know. Are there going to be that many con- companies who are interested in a patch that may not be ready for prime time? Well, what, I, I, what about the third-party patches yeah, that I think, um, EI and others? Well, have, they get a lot of publicity, but I think it remains to be seen exactly how many companies are implementing these third-party patches. Yeah, you know, I, a couple of months ago, I, um, the NASIG organization, it's a user group, um, we had a discussion about third-party patching, and... Um, I gave a presentation on it, and really, it, 
most people said that they would not use a third-party patch that didn't come straight from the vendor because in their minds it's more trouble than it's worth. And a lot of people that I've talked to over time for the stories we've done on that have uh, felt the same way. However, I think if it were something coming from Microsoft, even if it weren't the final version, I think in the eyes of a lot of IT people, it's you know, it, it's at least a stopgap until a final version is out. And I think it's a matter of having a process where uh, they can easily switch from an unfinished beta version that provides some protection to the final release that should provide full protection. Yeah, I mean, but legal, legally, Microsoft probably wouldn't want to do that. I mean, they'd catch hell if, you know, this beta patch... Uh, screwed up company systems, wouldn't Perhaps, they? I mean. Sure, but some of their final patches screw up systems too, as yeah. do other companies. Every it's, month. You know, <laughs> it, it happens. They, they break applications no, ma- no matter how much testing you do. All right, next up is Wi-Fi security. Uh, a recent Wall Street Journal report had a detailed look at the TJX data security breach. Uh, investigators there are tying the breach to poor Wi-Fi security. They said that attackers exploited a Wi-Fi or exploited Wi-Fi at a Marshall store and it eventually fed them into TJX's corporate systems. They said that Wi-Fi at the store was less secure than Wi-Fi systems used by consumers at home. Eric, why does it seem that corporate Wi-Fi security is lacking? In my mind, Wi-Fi security as a process is is considerably more difficult than it seems and much more difficult than securing a, a wireline. I mean, with, you're talking about, you know, securing the air versus, you know, securing some wires. I mean, it's pretty, I'm putting it in pretty basic terms, but when you talk about all the protocols and management issues involved, Wi-Fi security is pretty tough. But another important point here to mention is that Um, When you're talking about Wi-Fi security, you're not talking about grabbing packets out of the air. You're talking about securing the devices themselves. Yeah, I think that's right, Eric. And the, you know, the the reality is that you don't, you know, whether you're grabbing those packets out of the air, you don't necessarily need to reassemble them. What you really need to do is find one device that you can exploit, and then you hop from that, escalate your privileges, and you're off and running, which is you know, obviously what happened in the TJX case. And I th- it, but it, it still uh, sort of boggles my mind that we're, we're talking about these same problems um, six or seven years down the road. I, I mean, I remember writing stories about problems with WEP in 2001 and 2002, and we're still talking about the same issues. It's, it's hard to believe that people haven't gotten a good handle on this yet. Um, there's a lot of good products out there and a lot of good uh, best practices and processes that, that people have put in place, you know, known good processes that, that work well. It just seems that a lot of the companies um, that have wireless networks deployed don't have a good handle on how to secure those as opposed to their, uh, you know, their regular networks. Yeah, absolutely. And the bottom line is no matter how many processes and policies you have, execution is always going to be tough. I mean, when you're talking about hundreds and thousands of devices, actually, you know, where the rubber meets the road is is, is tough to make it happen 100% of the time. And I think hack, hackers know that and they understand that's always going to be the first point to, to look for for vulnerabilities. But who, who's to blame for that? Is it the Wi-Fi vendors that are, you know, getting these companies to install Wi-Fi and, and 
security is just not part of their solution? Well, I think, you know, one of the problems here, it's like anything else. You have a fairly new technology. And, you know, in this case, yeah, Dennis pointed out that this goes back a few years. but if, Almost 10. <laughs> yeah, but, but if you look at the amount of time where Wi-Fi use has exploded, it's really the last three years, just the growth of it has been incredible. And I think like anything else, everybody wants to be able to use a technology. And so enterprises sometimes have the habit of really rolling it out faster than they have thought out how to secure it. And I think that that's the situation we're in here. Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to it being a little bit of a trade-off between uh, mobility and openness and security. I mean, if, you know, TJX, for example, has thousands of stores just in North America alone, and there's it's there's almost no practical way for them to be able to, for some central IT department to be able to police how the employees in, a, in each particular store are running their operations. You know, if, if somebody decides, oh, I want to put up a wireless access point, it's pretty easy to do that. You know, you go to Best Buy, you get one, you're off and running. It's, it's really difficult for some central authority to police that. But I think, you know, in a case like this, where you end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal with, you know, 40 million uh, credit card numbers stolen, you've got to find a way around this. And I think that a lot of other um, big companies and, and organizations are going to start looking at their wireless infrastructures and saying, okay, what's going on here? Why are we, why are we, are we still having these problems? And if so, what can we do about it? Yeah, ultimately, I, I think a lot of it goes back to employee awareness as well. You've got to have a staff that makes sure it knows what wireless um, activity and, and policies are acceptable and what isn't. I mean, it needs to be clear that anything beyond um, the clearly articulated enterprise policy is not acceptable. I think the good news here is, and this is just from what I've seen in my own reporting, is that in the last year or so, the issue of wireless security is a lot higher on the radar screen for a lot of IT shops than it had been before. And, uh, you know, I give credit to people like, you know, like that that uh, demo at Black Hat last summer with Dave Maynard and John Elsh, where, you know, that became an issue about Apple security, and that's another story entirely. But the ultimate goal of that presentation was to show just how easy it is to get at a wireless uh, card in a laptop. And I think awareness is a lot better now than than what we were looking at. And uh, so it sure I'm optimistic does, there. It sure does seem to make the case for those high-profile uh, hacking demonstrations, doesn't it? Industry consolidation. Now, we've seen it playing out in the enterprise application space, and it's been happening at a greater pace in the security industry. Recently, Verizon Business announced plans to acquire information security services vendor CyberTrust. The acquisition is similar to one announced by British Telecom. Uh, that acquisition was of counterpane internet security. Is consolidation good for the market, or will customers pay a price? Bill? This is something where you can't paint the whole situation with one brush. It really is a case-by-case basis. Um, I, I, I've done some coverage in the last couple of months over how, um, how IT shops fare when they have security tools that are under one vendor and they switch to another vendor through these mergers and acquisitions. And there are some folks that are happy as can be. Um, 
I talked to a, uh, a Cypher Trust user who absolutely loves the way things have turned out since uh, Secure Computing came in and, and uh, gobbled up CypherTrust. But, the, but then on the other side of the spectrum, I talked to somebody dealing with Veritas in the wake of Symantec taking that over. And, you know, he, he talked about licensing nightmares and how he'd be on hold with the help desk for 20 minutes and then they'd hang up on him. And so it really, it really depends. It's, it's one of those things where I think it's always going to be yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the case of uh, Verizon and CyberTrust. I uh, yesterday was talking to some analysts, and you know they they were wondering, you know, the the brain power in CyberTrust, if you know how these people are really going to adjust to the culture of a big telecom. And um, there's some thought out there that they're not going to adjust very well, and that they're going to walk. And we'll see what happens there. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, that company has grown to a pretty good size. I think they're, what, at about 800 today, roughly, if I, I had to take a guess. I think they're right around there. So it's not like they're, you know, 50 people in a closet somewhere. So it, it should be interesting to watch, though. Yeah, and it'll really depend on, you know, because Verizon still isn't sure yet, or they say they're not sure yet, whether they're, you know, what's going to become of the CyberTrust name and how separate things will be. You know, they've said that their goal is to combine and not have, you know, two separate entities as has happened with some other, in some other cases. But, uh, you know, I think in the next 60 to 90 days, we're going to see some interesting shakeouts. Dennis, I, I was curious if you had any thoughts on um, what you think the acquisition means for the labs business, since it seems like they do a lot. I mean, they do a ton of, what is it, 95% of the industry's product testing and certification? Yeah, they do a lot. Um, that's, I, I'm guessing, is probably a lot of the value that, that Verizon is hoping to uh, to bring in. I'm not sure how that's going to work exactly with that being under another umbrella, you know, and not being necessarily an independent entity doing that kind of thing anymore not not really the underwriters laboratory type uh, experience that, that people have looked at in the past um, it, it's going to be difficult I think for them to to sort of uh, to keep that independence if they're now owned by a larger corporate entity um, but if they if they do try and keep them as two separate entities it may work out if they if they keep those folks in a separate office if they you know sort of keep them uh, divided from the rest of the business because you know Verizon isn't necessarily they're not really a, an IT company they're an infrastructure player they're you know they own yeah, fiber optic cable they're not really involved in the security business per se it'll be interesting to see if um, Verizon is, is willing to kind of take that hands-off approach or if it caves into some business demands if you will and, and maybe make some changes well yeah I think the, the key reason they made this acquisition is because they've it's sort of a, a, a catch-up type play on their part. Um, folks like MCI and AT&T have had these kind of security services uh, for a long time. Uh, AT&T in particular has built a lot of uh, very solid in-house security capabilities that, uh, like Bill said, are now built into the cloud that they offer customers. Um, it's just part of the services they offer now, uh, MCI as well. So I think uh, you know Verizon is really trying to catch up here. I'm not necessarily sure that... Um, CyberTrust has all of those kind of capabilities. They have some, but not necessarily all. So it wouldn't shock me to see Verizon uh, and other telcos make uh, some more of these acquisitions as we go forward. 
That ends this edition of Security Squad. If you have something to say, we'd like to hear from you. You can send us an email to editor at searchsecurity.com. That's editor at searchsecurity.com. You can check out our previous podcasts at searchsecurity.com slash podcast. And as always, you can get the latest information, security news and information at our news page at searchsecurity.com slash news. For Dennis Fisher, Bill Brenner, Eric Perizzo, I'm Rob Westervelt. Have a great day.